Let's pray and ask for the Lord to give his blessing to us as we give our attention to his word. Our God and our Father, we thank you in the name of Christ that you have made yourself known to men. You are under no obligation to make yourself known to us. And yet in your kindness and your mercy to us, you've revealed yourself to us through your word, through through prophets and other messengers, and finally and fully you've made yourself known to us in the person and work and the very word of Christ made flesh. Uh, we thank you, we praise you in his name, and we ask now for your spirit to help us as we, as we open together uh, Judges chapter 7. We pray that you will help us to hear not the voice of a man, but the voice of Christ as his word is proclaimed. Help us to see ourselves very clearly in the text. But more than that, help us to see you, all of your glory and your splendor, your majesty, your goodness and mercy. Help us to see Christ. Help us to look to him and to trust in him and him alone for our deliverance, for our rescue. We ask this in his name. Amen. You take your seats and turn once again to the book of Judges, where it will be in chapter 7 today. The text before us is Judges chapter 7. I plan to go down through verse 23. The title of today's sermon is, When Too Few is Enough. I conducted a a brief and thoroughly unscientific study this week. And I was looking at the subject of, of the perception of Christianity's strength in the West, and particularly in our country. And here's some sample headlines of some various articles that I read. One says, perspective, we're watching post-Christian America unfold in real time. Another one says the decline in religious belief and practice among young adults in an, is an oncoming train for which we are not remotely prepared. The Pew Research Center headline says, in the U.S., decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. Gallup poll finds a decline in religious practice and belief in God. Christianity Today says what to understand about Christianity's decline in America. Another article says Christianity to decline rapidly in America by 2050. It was a journal article. Another one said, the weird spiral of declining Christianity in America. Do you hear a theme? Now, these are all fairly recent headlines. I think the oldest is maybe two years old. And you've probably seen similar headlines. You've, you've run across the same sort of spirit of lament, the kind of warnings that we observe together as, as we see a culture that's in decline. How do you think about such things? When you read those kinds of things, or when, when those headlines fall upon your ears, what comes to mind? What do you think about? Or how do you think about such things? How do you respond in your own mind, in your heart? Is, is there something in you that sort of wells up and you go, oh, wow, this is bad? Maybe even fearful, anxious even. Today, in Judges 7, we're going to hear about a familiar story of Gideon. And, and the theme of Gideon's of Gideon or of Judges chapter seven, where we deal with Gideon, is is a theme I think that will help us as 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 we think about the, not only the the reality of our weakness, but in fact a command for our weakness. One of the reasons I chose to speak and preach through the book of Judges is that I, I believe that not only does it provide for us warnings for the church today. Warnings against the, the, the sort of canonization that Israel experienced, and particularly in the areas of worship 
and marriage and sexuality and children and discipleship, but because I'm also persuaded that, this, that in this book we'll find great encouragement with the Spirit's help. Very great, great encouragement for us to live in difficult days, in difficult seasons. And as we hear this very familiar story of Gideon going up against the Midianites, there's, there's, there's a, a caution that comes sort of ge- generically to us when we come across very familiar passages. Sometimes we've, we've heard these stories, sometimes for some of you since you were little guys in Sunday school, little girls in Sunday school. For those of you who came to faith later in, in life, these are certainly stories that would have drawn your attention. You've just read through the Bible on your own. They're compelling stories. But sometimes in that familiarity, we can miss or even repeat. We can miss the true point and we can repeat some of the same old errors. But perhaps the Spirit of God will use Judges 7 today as, as a rebuke, a correction to our thinking. You know, in Romans 12, Paul admonishes us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And you've heard me say this before, Paul's not talking there about a theoretical possibility that if you're not really guarding yourself, you could possibly become conformed to the world. No, that's our default position. We're born in conformity to the world. We are born with the darkness of a Gentile mind. It is only by the Word of God, working by the Spirit of God, that we are bit by bit renewed in our thinking. And perhaps the Spirit of God will correct us as we think about Judges 7. Also, perhaps the text will the Spirit of God will help this help you as we study the text to encourage you and to increase your weak faith. Many of us will identify with Gideon and, and the weakness and his fearfulness. We will identify with him, and we ought to take note of how kindly and gently and tenderly God deals with Gideon. We may also, by the Spirit's help, perhaps better understand the very goodness of God. God's kindness and his gentleness and his mercy revealed here in this story of Gideon. You know, in, in chapter seven or chapter 6, as we looked at two weeks ago, in chapter 6, sometimes the dominant approach or the dominant focus in a Sunday school lesson or a sermon perhaps you've heard before is on the fleece. What about the fleece? Is it wet? Is it dry? What, how do we make decisions? Is this a means of us discerning and divining the will of God? Well, if that's the case in chapter 6, that the focus tends to be on the fleece wrongly, well, in chapter 7, if the emphasis is wrongly placed, it's often on this whole kneelers versus lappers. And all kinds of lessons and sermons and things have been preached upon that, and I'll deal with it as we get to that point in the text, but that's not the point. It's not at all the point of the text. I'm going to divide this, this sermon really in, in just two sections, two main points today. The first one I'll take from verses 1 through 8, and I'll read that in just a moment. And the first, the first point, the first lesson we learn from Judges chapter 7 is that God insists that we know our weakness. God insists that his people know we are weak. And secondly, we'll, I'll take this from verses 9, and, 9 through 23, is that God, God promises to make good use of our weakness. So first of all, God insists that we know it, that we understand our weakness. And second of all, that God will make good use of that. So let's read together. I'm going to read to start with down through verse 8. So hear now the word of Christ as we read Judges 7, verses 1 through 8. Then Jerubael, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them. 
by the hill of Morai in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and the trumpet and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. May the Lord give his blessing upon the reading of his word. We need to know, first of all, the lesson we learn in this first section is that God insists that we know our weaknesses. We know our weakness, singular. And I don't think he necessarily means here that God is requiring us to discern every one of our individual weaknesses as opposed to our individual strengths and gifts. That's, that's a helpful thing, but that's not the lesson here. I think it's more that he needs us to know our human condition, our frame, our weakness before him as creatures, and particularly as fallen creatures. By asserting that Judges 7 teaches that God insists that we know this weakness, I mean that God insists that we humble ourselves before him. That we understand who he says that we are. See, we have in our minds sometimes what we think we are, don't we? we we've seen, maybe you've seen, I remember seeing years ago a cartoon strip. And it was kind of the side-by-side panel. And, and the, the one was the, the man standing in the mirror. And he's kind of, you know, chubby. And, 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 but in the mirror, he's kind of chiseled and, and looking good. And the wife, on the other hand, is that we well, you know how that goes. She's standing there looking good, but in the mirror, she's much broader. And we have a perception of ourselves sometimes that isn't accurate. But the Bible gives to us a true picture, and God insists that we know what the Bible says about us, that we look into that perfect law of liberty and see ourselves clearly. And what we see here in the life of Gideon is Gideon, God metaphorically takes Gideon by the hand and shows him, causes him to come face to face with who he really is with his weakness. Now, it wasn't a stretch. When we first met Gideon, remember, he was hiding in a wine press, treading out the grain. He was thrashing the wheat in the wine press. And the angel comes to him and says, greetings, O mighty man of valor, of valor. Greetings, mighty warrior. And Gideon's looking around, who are you talking to? It can't be me. But God insists that as sinful human beings, we understand that we don't possess the capacity in ourselves for our own repair or reformation or ransom or redemption or rescue. In Judges 7, the particular way 
And when God makes this point known, this, this point plain to Gideon, is by paring down the numbers of the troops. Now, we were, we were introduced to this in chapter 6, and we're going to see this later in chapter 7. There's the problem here. The Midianites have just utterly terrorized the Israelites to the point that they, that they couldn't even thresh their grain in the open because the, the Midianites would, would, would ride in, literally, on their camels. They would turn their livestock loose on their crops, and like locusts would destroy it. We're given a picture here later on in the chapter that the, the, the camels, even the camels of the Midianites couldn't be numbered. The men were described as being like locusts. In the end of the section I just read, the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. I mean, that's just a, that, that, if this were a, a, a movie, you would hear the dun, dun, dun kind of music at that point. It's ominous. It's terrifying. And the Lord had summoned Gideon out of this wine press to lead his people. Midian's already, or Gideon's already feeling weak. The Lord says, gather some armies, gather the men together from the near, from the near clans, and 32,000 men come forward. And Gideon's got to be thinking to himself. Now, you've got to be honest about this. Midian's got to be thinking, this isn't nearly enough. I mean, have you seen the hordes of Midianites? They're going to slaughter us with 32,000 people. But the Lord first instructs Gideon to say to the men, this is following after Deuteronomy chapter 20. The Lord had already given instructions through Moses that when they went into the promised land, when they were to confront an adversary, that someone who just bought a house, somebody just been married, were not to serve. But also, the officer shall speak further to the people and say, if there's any man who is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So Gideon stands before the people and says, 32,000 of you, any of you is afraid... You can go home. And bam, 22,000 of them head home. More than two-thirds gone. And Gideon's got to be thinking, 10,000. I mean, I think we were shorthanded at 32,000. Now we're at 10,000. And so the word says, it's still too many. It's still too many. Then we come to this whole kneelers and lappers episode which again kind of wrongly becomes or, or is wrongly focused upon in the text sometimes. But, but we have 22,000 of the men immediately go. Of the 10,000, the Lord says, I'm going to sort them yet again. And he, and he gives these you know, two different parameters. The one that I tell you to go goes with you. The one that I say doesn't go does not go. Am I clear about that, Gideon? The one who I say doesn't go, he doesn't go. Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you set him on one side. And he's not telling Gideon which is which at this point. He's just saying, here's the test. The one who lapped, their do- lapped the water like a dog, you put him on one side. And the ones who, um, who kneels down to drink, you put on the other side. And, and 10,000 people is a lot, so it takes a while. They're, they're gathered here at the spring, what's called the Spring of Herod. So it's probably a spring with a little collection pool, and so it takes some time to sort all this through. And you can imagine what's going through Gideon's mind as he's watching this scene. And he watches kind of a smaller group forming over here and a larger group over here. And which one is Gideon going to choose? Whew, I'm hoping this bigger group here. And the Lord hasn't told him yet. And then the Lord says to Gideon in verse 7, with the 300 men who lapped, 
I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. I mean, put yourself in Gideon's place. You've got to be thinking, are you kidding me? I've already lost 22,000. Now another 9,700 are being taken away. But this whole kneelers and lappers episode, this has been fodder for all kinds of, of Sunday school lessons, all kinds of sermons, trying to convince us that what's happened here is that the Lord has somehow sorted out the 300 aces out of the group. And they try to use this event to show how God has handpicked the 300 best and most vigilant men. Listen to one commentator. He says this, God saw how untrustworthy would be those thousands who carelessly indulged under the lure of the flesh, over against the 300 who exemplified a spirit of vigilance and disciplined life in the spirit. Thus were selected the strong and resolute, the men who could be trusted under rigorous conditions, those who did not think of themselves before the enemy's unexpected assault. This is never the divine principle of, or this is ever the divine principle of selection for service. As Gideon, so the church in this day is served well by the minority group ready and vigilant. Sounds good, right? You've heard of SEAL Team 6, right? Gideon's got SEAL Team 300. The best and the brightest, this is his spec ops group. There's a problem, though. There is zero evidence in the text. Zero to suggest that the Lord is choosing the best and the brightest here. There's none. It just doesn't say that. I mean, we, we could read into the text, perhaps, but it isn't there. In fact, the interpretive key to this whole passage is not here in verses 4 through 8. It's actually back in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. See, that's the interpretive key. The Lord says, there's too many of you. If I I deliver you by the hands of many, you will take credit for yourselves, and you will boast and say, we saved ourselves. And God says, I am not about to share my glory with anyone. So in fact, if we're going to read into the text something that isn't there, If we're going to do that, at least let's err on the side of seeing that there is, if there's relative merit at all between the kneelers and the lappers, we're better off if we're going to be more consistent interpreting the text the way God intends us to interpret it. We would be better off assuming the 300 lappers were the least capable. And and you know how this is. This kind of jives with my own experience in life. 300 out of 10,000, that's that's 3 out of 100, 3%. Doesn't that seem to be your experience when you you go out into public and about 3% of the people? Just there's no common sense at all. You wonder how they get home alone by themselves. I mean, you see them in public, you're out here unsupervised. And and, and you think, how can you even tie your own shoes? Bless your heart. Are, Are you this dense or are you just actively trying to avoid work and responsibility? And you can laugh, but you're related to some of these people. You work with some of them, don't you? And sadly, churches have them too. And perhaps God was actually pleased to show his strength through the weakest of the bunch. That God picked the 300 least likely 
Because as we see the plan unfold, it's not like they've got to be good with a sword to carry out the plan. It's not like they have to be skilled in battle to carry out the plan. The Apostle Paul understood this as he spoke to the Corinthian church. And you'll remember the Corinthian church was sort of enamored with, with philosophy and the, the wisdom of men, economic strength, um, credentials. And he says to the Corinthian church in chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring things that are, so that no human being might boast. Does that sound familiar? No human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let no one, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, isn't that a more consistent interpretation? It's not the 300 super-duper deluxe crackerjack aces in the group. At best, these were just ordinary men. This was just a, a random selection from God. But again, if we're going to read something in, we want to at least read in something consistent with the text. It's very possible these were the 300 least likely, least capable. But brothers and sisters, isn't it so easy to forget this? Isn't it so easy to slip back into kind of a pagan way of thinking, a worldly way of thinking? We want to be strong in the eyes of God, don't we? Don't we want to impress others? Don't don't we want to demonstrate our strength in worldly terms, whether it's physical prowess or economic prowess or political strength? Don't Don't we think we have to have that kind of superiority in order to make a difference? I mean, I'll tell you, most pastors, if we're honest, will agree that the most dreaded question you can be asked, how big's your church? It is, I'll tell you, it's, 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 no one likes that question. And we dread to hear it. How big's the church? And perhaps, you know, maybe that's not the case among megachurch pastors, but I don't know any of them. So I can't say. But the real temptation at that point is, is either maybe to round up on our answer or, or to, to feel a, a sense of lament or even shame at how relatively small I mean, because I drive by the same church as you do. We see the, the, the big, ginormous edifices, and you see the, the parking lots that, that can fill a thousand cars, and you think, wow, we seems so insignificant, seems so small. And we can forget that God is not ordinarily in the business of working with large numbers. It's certainly not a necessity for him. The Apostle Paul, again, understands the strength of his ministry of his apostolic ministry. That strength didn't exist in numbers. It didn't didn't persist in his own strength. And again, he provokes the Corinthian church. Now in his second letter to them, he provokes them to forsake their attachment to teachers who thought too much of their own intellect, their own credentials, their own numbers, their own abilities. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul speaks as an apostle here and said, God has put this treasure in an earthen vessel. A broken clay pot is where God has chosen to store, in a sense, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by that means to make it known. I couldn't find the quote and confirm it, but I believe it was Robert Murray McShane. I heard a a quote from him years ago. He was interacting in his office with a young pastor. Robert Murray McShane was uh, a famous Scottish Presbyterian pastor known for his, his faithfulness in ministry. And he's speaking to a young pastor, expressing his, his impatience at the fact that his congregation remained small. You know what McShane told him? He said, my dear young man, on the day of the Lord, you will not, be, you will not think your flock too small. He's exactly right. Dear brothers and sisters, will you acknowledge to yourself, will you acknowledge to God how easily you are tempted to place your own hope in, in a worldly measure of strength? And whether that's numerical, because we want to look around and go, it feels a lot more comfortable if I've got thousands of people with me. Will you, will you be, recognize your own temptation to place your hope in that kind of strength rather than placing your hope in your own weakness, which our Savior has promised to perfect according to his strength? We repent of our desire for, for large numbers, and big budgets, and economic power, political power, rather than simple faith in God's strength, in God's wisdom, in God's mercy. Now, don't we think this way in politics? I mean, even in the, the, the sort of the evangelical version of, of politics, don't we think this way? We need numbers, we need strength, we need visibility. We need people to know we're here. Let us, you know, let, let us hear, let them hear us roar, so to speak. But we think this way among churches too, don't we? We think the churches that that are are large, or have big public platforms, that they're the ones who are most useful in the kingdom of God. We can easily think this way. But you know, we can even think this way in our homes. We we can begin to think that even our small numbers are somehow less useful to the kingdom of God because your children are grown and your home is no longer the size that it once was. And your, your, your empty nest feels less significant. Or those who have what they would consider few children or no children might, might be tempted to think we don't have the numbers to be significant in the kingdom of God. May we not think this way. May we never take pride in our numbers. May we never believe that our strength rests there. Our strength is in the good and mighty hand of God. So God wants, first of all, for us to know our weakness, to know our frame, to know that we are merely creatures and utterly dependent upon him for the very breath that we have, for our wisdom, for our understanding, for everything that we have. But thankfully, the text doesn't end there. The Lord also, through Gideon, models to us, it demonstrates to us that he promises to make good use of our weakness. It is, not, it is not that God has simply called us to be weak and left us there. But God says, I will make good use of this. Look at, look at verse 9 and following. That same night, what's, what night is this? The same night that the Lord pared the number down to 300. That same night, 
the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and he came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon And the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerorah and as far as the border of Abel Mohalah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Nephtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Notice the kindness of God in dealing with Gideon's weakness. Notice God's kindness. He purposely put Gideon in a weak position with respect to the size of the fighting force that he was to lead. He's pared them down to 300. And we see that number get repeated again, just just for emphasis sake, and also to help us to know that Gideon didn't add some more in the back door. He commands Gideon now to go down against the Midianite. But then immediately, he provides an opportunity for Gideon to have his faith fortified, his, his weak faith strengthened and this is this is comical to me i think you have to you have to you have to be willing to laugh at a chuckle at this because you're chuckling at yourself when you do there in verse 10 the word says or verse 9 go down against the camp verse 10 but if you're afraid if (laughs) really if of course i'm afraid when when you found me lord i was hiding in a wine press and, and now you want me to go against a, a, an army. I can't even fathom how many men they have there. And you want me to go down with 300. Have you seen these guys? 
and I'm supposed to go down with them and fight. And not even fight, I don't even have a sword. None of my men have swords. If I'm afraid, of course I'm afraid, God. 300 men against an innumerable army. As a matter of fact, God, I do have some concerns. Matthew Henry says, Gideon's army being diminished as we have found it was, he must either fight by faith or not at all. God, therefore, here provides recruits for his faith instead of recruits for his forces. Isn't that the way the word works with us sometimes too? He provides recruits for our faith, not recruits for our forces. And this is the way that God has dealt with us, and particularly in giving us the ordinances of the gospel by which our failing and faltering faith and our cowering courage is strengthened. God has given us the ordinances of the gospel. Like Gideon, God has provided means for us to be strengthened. The word says to us, as we confess today in, in our, our catechism. Now, I didn't plan it this way, but in, in, as we think about the fourth commandment. In, in the question 117, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? First, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I regularly attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. In other words, the Lord says to us as his people, go down to the camp. It was there. It is there you will find your strength. It is there you will find your courage built up. It is there you will find yourself fortified for the day of battle. It is there you will meet with me. You will hear about me. Now what happens when, when Gideon goes? He takes his servant Purah so that there will be two or more witnesses to testify to his brothers in Israel. But he goes down. We see God in verses 1 through 8, see that God insists that we know our own weakness. In verses 9 and following, we see that God summons us to know him, to know his strength to know his goodness. And our Lord Jesus has provided for us all the means, all the means that are necessary for us to know God and to enjoy him forever. Notice what happens next. Gideon divides his army. He, he goes down to the camp, and, and seeing, seeing what's happening here in the camp, he goes down with Purah. And, and again, in your mind's eye, Stand up on the hill here and look down upon this camp. We're told that the camels can't be numbered. We're told that the men are like locusts. How many tents does it take to accommodate that kind of army? I don't know, but it's a lot. And, and Gideon is looking down and seeing all those tents. And, and the narrator here makes sure we know in verse 11, second half, verse 11, then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. It's just the beginning of the second watch. So it's just after midnight. It's dark. I mean, kind of dark we don't know around here in the city. It's dark. All he knows about this army is I can't even count the number of tents, much less the number of men in those tents. But it just so happens just so happens that the tent that Gideon happens to walk past just happens to have two men inside it talking about one of the men's dreams in the middle of the night. Just so happens. 
look what happens here. When Gideon came, verse 13, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And then we read the dream. The dream itself is, is nonsensical, as dreams often are. You ever wake up with those dreams? You go, what was that? <clears throat> I dreamed a dream. Behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the, its tent, the tent lay flat. So stakes, ropes, everything is upturned. The tent's overturned based on a barley loaf running down the hill. I mean, what, what did he have for supper? It would cause such a dream. But we know, as we, as we, as we read through the Old Testament, we know the, the significance of dreams are in its interpretation. And the other man in the tent with him answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, how did this man even know Gideon's name? God put it there. God has placed fear in the hearts of his enemies. Gideon's a nobody. Gideon doesn't even have a sword. And yet God had placed a terror, even the name of Gideon struck fear. Now we know, we've seen this throughout Judges already, that, that most of the Judges, in those Judges we find a, a sense of a typology, a type of Christ. The fact that a man trembles at the name of Gideon ought to remind us of something, of someone. The name at, at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There is a name in heaven that every man should fear. A name against which every man will tremble. And here, Gideon's response, having heard, hearing, I mean, imagine that. Gideon was a, a, a real live person. Sometimes we make Old Testament figures in particular, kind of like those cardboard cutouts at the movie theater. We make them a two-dimensional creature. And we forget, Gideon was like you and me. He had the same kinds of anxieties and fears, and, and he's, and he's Got to be quaking in his boots. He's there with Purod, and they're unarmed, and they're, this, they're sneaking into this camp, and he hears his own name coming out of this tent. And he hears his name mentioned with fear. And he knows that's not of himself. He knows that. That's, there's nothing in him that's worthy of a man's fear. Certainly not an armed man. Certainly not a, a whole army of armed men. And Gideon bows his head, and he worships as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And then at this point, Gideon's starting to get it. Things are starting to click. Now he divides his army further. Before, 32,000 in his mind wasn't enough. 10,000 wasn't enough. 300 certainly isn't enough. Now he divides the 300. Three battalions of a hundred, he commands the men to go down to face the Midianites, and he orders the men to do as he does. He tells the men to imitate him. He says in verse 17, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. Again, the typology is rich with Gideon. Where have we heard that before? Follow me. Do as I do. Beloved, has not our own captain and Lord commanded of us the same imitation of him? 
Has he not commanded us to follow him and to do as he's done? Has he not promised his presence as we follow him? In John 13, here's the scene where he observes the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And, and, and you know the story. He, he girds the servant's apron and he washes their feet. And then he stands and he says, if, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And the Apostle Paul understood this. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The methods of the kingdom of God are not the methods of men. Now, what do you think it was like when Gideon gathers the 300 men? I mean, the 300 men were present for the whole thing. They were part of the 32,000, then they were part of the 10,000, now they're the 300. And they've got to be waiting anxiously. What's the plan here, Gideon? You're our captain. You're leading us into battle. We have this innumerable numbered army. What's the plan? Okay, everybody needs a trumpet, a pitcher, and a torch. Um, Gideon, can, can I talk to you privately for a minute? I don't think that's enough. I mean, again, think through this. Put yourself in, in, that, in that place. Those methods, not only are the numbers weak, but now even the implements, the instruments are weak. The methods of the kingdom of God are not the methods of men. See, the world tells us that strength is in numbers, that strength is in superior strategies, that strength is in bigger budgets, greater skill. But our captain says, our captain says that his strength is best displayed, perfected even, in our weakness. When we humbly proclaim salvation in his name alone, we display his strength and our weakness so that no man may boast. We are called to love one another, to listen to the voice of God and his word, and to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And we, probably like Gideon's men, thinking, a torch, a jar, and a trumpet? Surely there's something more. Surely there's something more significant that we could be doing to cause a, to, to, to see men brought out of darkness and into light. Surely there's something more that's necessary to cause us to be conformed more and more to the image of the risen and exalted Christ. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you see how we are tempted to think like worldlings? At every turn, maybe even having been among one of the 300, imagine yourself, you're one of the 9,700 that got sent home. But you're still hearing. I'm sure you're still getting reports. You're knowing what's going on. And you're thinking, glad I didn't get selected after all. Because that's a suicide mission. Torches, pitchers, trumpets. I mean, what kind of plan is this? But notice what God does when the 300 men and Gideon obey God. Notice what happens. Upon 
Gideon's command. Gideon, the hundred men who were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp, verse 19, at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, I understand why they would call out a sword for the Lord, but why name Gideon's name here? Because we already saw back in verse 14, Gideon heard on the lips of the men in the tent that even his name was feared. God had put a terror in their hearts at even the name of Gideon. So they cried out, a sword for Jehovah and for Gideon. One commentator said, if these pitchers, trumpets, and firebrands did so daunt and dismay the proud troops of Midian and Amalek, who shall be able to stand before the last terror when the trumpet of the archangel shall sound? The elements shall be on a flame, the heavens pass away with a great noise, and the Lord himself shall descend with a shout. What will it be like on that day for the enemies of God when Christ himself returns? The captain to whom Gideon merely points in shadows. What of you today? Are you like the proud troops of Midian, delighting in your sin and giving no thought to the fact that one day you will stand before the Lord and give an account for every thought and word and deed? Will you humble yourself today and bow before Christ? Will you confess him as captain and Lord and your only rescuer, your only deliverer? The only the only mediator between you and God, will you confess him as the only one who can cleanse your sin, who can purge you from all unrighteousness? And not only that, but the only one who can then grant to you his own perfection, having lived perfectly and obedient to every jot and tittle of God's law. Will you believe that? That your sins might be washed away. And then to my brothers and sisters, Christians, aren't we, aren't we tempted to unbelief in precisely the same way that the men of Gideon probably were tempted? Are, are we tempted in exactly those same ways to feel so weak and insignificant? Are we not tempted to survey the declining church in the West, to see those headlines, to see the Pew data, to see the Gallup poll data? The shrinking influence of Christians, the rapid rise of immorality, and think we need something big, we need something bold, we need something powerful, we need something really strategic to rescue us. Will we believe that Christ has indeed given to his church instruments of war? that are suitable, according to his Spirit's power, to tear down strongholds? We believe that and practice that. The Corinthian church, again, seems to be so enamored with worldly wisdom and strength. They were, they were following after what Paul referred to as so-called super-apostles. And Paul said to them in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. See, Paul understood the tension in the minds of God's people. He, he knows, based on his own temptations, we're tempted to think in those worldly ways, to seek out those patterns of worldly strength, to be drawn to that. 
and have to be reminded again and again and again that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. What are exactly these weapons of warfare that Paul speaks of that have, that have divine power to destroy strongholds? Where, where can we find such weapons? Well, Paul says to Timothy, he's left Timothy behind at Ephesus to establish churches there. And he tells to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, listen to this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And we look at that and say, that's the equivalent of a trumpet and a torch and a pot. Compared to the troubles and the difficulties in the world around us, we think these are so insignificant. I mean, to listen to a sermon, to pray, to eat bread and, and drink wine, to fellowship with one another, and we think, that's, that's great. We love those things. Those are, those are enjoyable. But to tear down strongholds? Matthew Henry says, this method here taken of defeating the Midianites may be alluded to as typifying the destruction of the devil's kingdom in the world by the preaching of the everlasting gospel, the sounding of that trumpet, and the holding forth of that light out of earthen vessels. For such the ministers of the gospel are in whom the treasure of that light is deposited. Thus God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. A barley cake to overthrow the tents of Midian that the excellency of the power might be of God only. The gospel is a sword, not in the hand, but in the mouth. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon, of God and of Jesus Christ, him that sits on the throne and on the Lamb. Amen. Brothers and sisters, will you believe that the apparently meager means that God has given to ransom sinners from darkness into light the seemingly insignificant means of growing you in the grace of Christ, the seemingly insignificant means that God has given for preserving your soul to the day of his return, will you believe that those are enough? That not only are they sufficient, but they are mighty. The Midian army and, and, and the descriptions here that are repeated for us of their, their, their large numbers, their power, their might, their bravado, their, their pride, typifies our own struggle with sin, doesn't it? We believe that the Word and the Spirit are sufficient means to conquer the locust-like sins that maybe ensnare you. The things that which you think, this is, this is unconquerable. This is undefeatable. We believe that the Word and Spirit are sufficient means to sanctify you and preserve you to the day of glory. Brothers and sisters, let's not despise the small things of God, the apparently insignificant things of God. If God is in them, we can find nothing more powerful in this world. Let's pray. Father, we bless your holy and triune name. We bless and praise the name 
the only name given among men by which we must be saved, the name at which every man will tremble and bow. We pray that you will be gracious to us and, and give us your spirit that we might bow to you in joy and peaceful surrender and not bow before you in terror and judgment on the day of your return. I pray for all those who who are here among us today, even our own children who know not Christ, who have not yet heard the voice of their captain, heard and believed his voice, followed after him, that today would be the day where your spirit works miraculously, powerfully in the hearts and minds of those who remain yet in darkness. Lord, for your own glory's sake, will you save sinners in our midst? Cause them to believe on Christ as the only rescuer and deliverer. Lord, will you minister to your people? Grant to us the grace by your Spirit's power to be sanctified according to your word by your Spirit, to be conformed more and more and more to the image of Christ so that we can love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And grant to us the grace to love our neighbor as ourselves and especially those of the household of faith. Help us to grow in our love for one another. Help us to serve you with a simple faith, a childlike faith that trusts Whatever our Father commands us to do is good and right. Whatever our Captain has given to us as commands, that we are to follow them in belief. These instruments of warfare that you've given to your church are mighty and are not to be despised. We ask this for Christ's namesake. Amen.